Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. New York collectors Herbert and Dorothy Vogel trace the development of their vast art collection in this podcast recorded on June 12, 1994 at the National Gallery of Art in honor of the exhibition From Minimal to Conceptual, Works from the Dorothy and Herbert Vogel Collection. The Vogels began collecting art in the 1960s, a time that saw a new generation of artists respond to the abstract expressionist movement. These artists questioned the entire practice of art making, the nature of the art object, and how art functioned within society. By forming close personal relationships with the artists, a process that the Vogels describe as invaluable, they assembled one of the country's greatest and most extensive collections of conceptual, minimal, and post-minimal art with limited financial means. From Minimal to Conceptual was the first major showing of their collection at the National Gallery of Art and was on view from May 29th through November 27, 1994. Hello, my name is Mark Rosenthal. I'm the curator of 20th Century Art at the National Gallery. To my right is Darcy Vogel, Herb Vogel, and Ruth Fine, curator of uh, Modern Prints and Drawings. We're here today to converse with two of the most fascinating collectors of contemporary art in the world. The Vogels started collecting in the 1960s at a time when uh, the influence of abstract expressionism was starting to wane. And uh, the term abstract expressionism can be encapsulated in what the paintings of Willem de Kooning look like, for those of you not familiar with the terminology. Uh, the kind of art that was starting to become uh, seen in New York to a great extent was very much the antithesis of what abstract expressionism was like. Uh, by comparison, it was very, uh, very dispassionate art, a cerebral art, uh, highly calculating, restrained, refined. Uh, compared to the wild sort of gesture of a de Kooning, we now have lines that are drawn uh, lines that are drawn in the sense even of when the works are sculpture. Well, the Vogel collection began with a group of artists now known as minimal artists. This is a work by Donald Judd. Uh, these minimal artists emphasized very, very simple forms. They were interested in the beauty of the simple elemental form, a form that was quickly recognizable. What these minimal artists wanted to do, among other things, was counteract uh, part of the abstract expressionist emphasis on romanticism, on individuality, on gesture. And the way they hoped to do that was by simply making objects, objects that were easily understood as soon as you saw them, that did not withhold any meaning. Uh, they were simply what they were. The thing in itself was the terminology emphasized a great deal in those days. Uh, that kind of emphasis on the object as opposed to any uh, romantic uh, feelings about what was being presented for these artists represented a kind of seriousness and integrity about art that they felt earlier art did not, <coughs> excuse me, did not have. This is an early and very important work by Saul LeWitt, who's represented in the exhibition. Another of the minimalists was Carl Andre, and here an important floor piece by Andre. 
Another part of the exhibition is concerned with what is now called post-minimal art. All of these terms, I should add, are very elastically applied. The post-minimalists were influenced by the minimalists, but wanted to soften the whole look of minimalism. And so instead of squares and rectangles, you start to have irregular shapes, such as this work by Richard Tuttle. Or um, where you still have a rectangular shape, it's no longer machine-made. Uh, this is a work by Archwager, Richard Archwager, made of horsehair. Uh, there's a much greater interest on the part of these artists in giving a kind of showing materials that have almost a kind of vulnerability, even though the forms themselves are still often rectilinear. During this moment of what is known as post-minimal art, there was even a return to subject matter at times, mostly overt subject matter. So that Joel Shapiro, the sculptor, is still making uh, tough kind of steel objects, but often there's an association of a house where the artist Chuck Close turned to images of himself and his friends, but you see the images over graph paper so that there's an emphasis on the structure of the object. Finally, the last part of the exhibition is devoted to what's known as conceptual art. The conceptualists really grew out of minimal art and carried minimal type premises to new levels, new extremes, one might say. Uh, the minimalists had emphasized that the idea of the artist was more important or equally important with the making of the object, and so they were unconcerned with making the objects. Well, certain artists brought language into the uh, repertoire as if to say the idea was so important that you could simply state an idea or state a definition uh, by way of saying this is potential content in art, although, again, it's always very rigorous. Um, other artists were carrying forth on the idea of the artwork as an independent object, an object separate from uh, associations, and decided that they needed to leave the museum field altogether or to leave galleries and start doing artworks in natural settings or just outside art context at any rate. <clears throat> and so you have art, and the artist Christo uh, making his famous valley curtain far, far away from any museum. Certain artists uh, carried this idea of the artwork needing to have its boundaries extended and moved away even from the object uh, with someone like uh, Dennis Oppenheim who in this work makes use of his own body as uh, the plane on which a pictorial event would happen, the pictorial event being a sunburn. <laughs> One of the exciting parts of the Vogel collection is the emphasis on wall drawings by a number of artists. The artists making wall drawings in many cases are making works uh, or are designing works of art that are then executed by other people. So right away the hand of the artist is separated, uh, which of course was part of the minimalist outlook. In addition, these wall drawings are naturally directly on the wall, which eliminates the object altogether and makes the site where the work of art appears at least as important as the work of art itself. So here's the Salawit that you see right outside as you come into the exhibition.
and a last wall drawing by uh, Lawrence Wiener, an artist who emphasizes language. And this is a wall drawing that appears in the bathroom of the Vogel's house. Uh, the home of the Vogel's, as you can see, is packed with art. This is uh, one of the, the famous attributes of the Vogel's collection is how full their collection is in terms of where it's located. Everywhere you go in the home of the Vogel's, you see objects hanging uh, packed away in many places. One of the wonderful things about the Vogels and their collecting is that they have uh, addressed and collected some of the toughest and most uncompromising art produced in the last 30 years and done it with tremendous passion. So it's my pleasure today to introduce the Vogels and to have a conversation about their collecting. Thank you, Mark, and thank you all for coming. Um, we're going to start with Mark and I uh, talking to the Vogels, and then uh, towards the end of the program, we will open it up to questions from the audience. When we do get to that point, I hope those of you who have questions will stand up and ask them clearly, and then one of us up here will repeat them so you all can hear them um, before they're answered from this end. And after that, as many of you know, there will be a book signing uh, in which the Vogels will participate, uh, signing the catalog of their exhibition outside the auditorium. I think um, as good as any way to start is how the two of you, Herb, who had a real grounding in art history in New York City, and Dorothy, who came to New York City and had a real love for Impressionism, came to collect what Mark has called the toughest art being produced at that moment. You started collecting minimal and conceptual art really before most people were engaged by it at all. And so why don't you start out by telling us about the beginning? Uh, well, do you want to go back to our first purchases or from where it started um, in 1965 with the minimal work? Uh, the first piece we bought together was a small piece by John Chamberlain made out of crushed cars. And um, I really don't remember what we got in the early days, but the big turning point was in 1965 when we bought our first Saul Lord and the Donald Judd. And uh, through Saul and Dan Graham, we met a lot of the artists who were doing that type of work, people like Bob Mangold, Sylvia Mangold, um, Robert Smithson, Carl Andre, Joe Bear, and we started to uh, get to know them, go to their studios, and that's how we started getting their work. We met a lot of the artists first, and so we had, were lucky enough to meet them and talk to them and learn about the work from them, which stimulated us to think about the work and understand it, and then we were able to collect it. What attracted you to the work from an aesthetic standpoint? For me, it was all aesthetics. I mean, I see beauty, and uh, we look at the Joseph Kosuth. I think there's beauty in looking at the placement of the words. Um, I like the ideas. I like things that are cerebral, but I'm attracted aesthetically mostly to the works. Um, Herbie, what do you? I would agree with you, Dorothy. Uh, they they are aesthetic, and the period we're in now is uh, away from aesthetics, uh, which is interesting. Uh, what we call deconstruction. And that is a way from the traditional aesthetics that I have been taught in the universities. 
And uh, I'm not saying anything for or against. I'm only describing it. Did you have a sense when you started uh, buying this work that you were buying something that was radically different? Were you aware of its um, unusualness? Yes, because people who came to visit us didn't understand it. (laughs) (laughs) And I still don't understand it. And uh, we'd have people coming over and say, why do you have that and what's that? And um, so we had an idea early that it was quite different. And, And so what did you say when they asked you those questions? Uh, Well, I don't remember saying too much because we're really not crusaders or educators. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't feel we had to go and and teach people what we saw. It was there, and if they liked it, fine. If they wanted to uh, talk about it, we talked about it. But we didn't really try to convert anybody. Mm -hmm. We were just aware that a lot of people thought it was radical, and uh, we then became very careful who we invited over to visit us. We had mostly art people who really understood, and um, it was really word of mouth. One artist told the other artist, and then one curator told another curator, and uh, pretty soon we had a lot of people coming to see our collection. The interesting or uninteresting aspect of what Dorothy just said to me is that um, the Europeans were very much earlier to be attracted to this kind of art. For one reason or another, I cannot explain uh, they were, uh, as I said, very early on, and we had many, many European museum people, collectors, and people who were interested, and very, very few who were interested from this country at an early time. It's now changing, but at that time when we were collecting, that was the situation. And I realize that even today a lot of people don't understand this work, and uh, there are some people who do and like it, and some people don't. And uh, we accept that fact. Uh, not every, it's not for everybody. Uh, we happen to like it, and I'm fortunate for us, Mark and Ruth like it in the National Gallery. Yeah, very but, lucky. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and I hope some of you might also. But uh, we realize that it really isn't uh, everybody's taste. The interesting thing to me about this kind of work at the moment, it is our period. Uh, it has gone from traditional to untraditional by, as Mark has explained in Ruth, where the artist no longer uses his hand as a craftsman, but as a um, technology, as a fabricator, or done uh, machine-wise, as Mark said a minute ago. So again, that's a complete change for thousands and thousands of years in the Western tradition where we would use our hands And there's nothing wrong with that either, I might say. But here is a different change, and this is part of the period that I think we're in. And I'm not saying, again, whether it's good or bad. I'm just explaining. Um, You know, I'm glad you mentioned that, that this is art of our time. And knowing the artists of our time, the artists who did it, and to talk to them and have them as friends, has far enriched our collection beyond our, uh, we can ever explain or express how important it is. And it's very nice to enjoy the Impressionists, which I also like, or the Renaissance and other periods of art. But to know the artists of our time who are living when we're living uh, is very exciting. Is that really one of the most exciting aspects of having collected all this, was being in the art world and knowing the people? Yes. Yes, it's another dimension that 
of course the collection will, will go beyond us when we're dead, but that dimension of our association with them for us personally was a great experience. I think one of the interesting things, Dorothy, was when uh, you and Herb were talking about walking through the Robert Ryman show with Richard Tuttle and that in being close to the artists, you're not only getting insights about their own art, but about how they look at another artist's art. And I wondered if you might elaborate on that uh, to some degree. Well, for me, I learned, I had to learn the hard way. I didn't study art in school. And I learned by talking to people, going to lectures, but a lot from the artists themselves. And so uh, how to look at a work of art was one of the things I learned from Richard Tuttle because he would come over to visit us very frequently, and we'd show him the latest thing we bought, and we'd look at it. It could be a young artist no one ever heard of. It could be someone well-known. didn't make any difference. We'd take it out, and we spend like hours looking at it and examining it. And that's really how I learned about art. Herb and Dorothy, you were among the world's most famous collectors in part for your story that... Um, you were not people of great means and that you were devoting a lot of the money you earned in your salary uh, to buy your collection. Uh, did you ever have doubts about that? I mean, what did it mean to be giving up so much of your income or giving up certain uh, extra pleasures in life or objects? I never or... felt we're giving up anything. I always felt I did what I wanted to do. I don't know about Herbie, but... Um, we're not... Uh, I don't seem to be complaining. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're not ones that take vacations. <laughs> I don't like sitting on the beach. I don't like... Uh, um, we don't believe in fur coats for animal people. Um, I like clothes, but I don't buy expensive clothes. Uh, I go to the theater, but I go to the cheapest seats. Um, I, I, I do what I want. I, I buy books. I go to the theater. We go out to dinner. I, I, we live normal lives. I, I don't think I'm giving anything up. We might not go to the best restaurants, and I don't buy expensive clothes, but I, I've been able to do what I wanted to do. I never felt I gave anything up. Well, with the pleasure uh, uh, that we got from doing it, uh, I, I, I can't see any sacrificial uh, situation there at all. It was something that was overwhelmingly beautiful to us emotionally and intellectually and things I can't it's describe because there are words that, that are not yet defined uh, and this is something I'm really saying sincerely. I mean it, it's something we really enjoyed so when people say that we have sacrificed uh, I, I'm a little feeling contrary to that. And I know the way the work looks on the walls is very crowded but there was so much energy going back and forth, and artists would visit us, and they pick up the energy. Uh, it was really a very exciting time. So now I hope the energy has been transferred here to the National Gallery, and uh, you feel the excitement of one work bouncing off the other. And I know that in our apartment they're close together, but they are now seen as they should be seen with the right amount of space, the right amount of lighting. And this is our wish. This is a, an exhibition that um, we all hope for. It's an American dream. I worked for the post office, the federal government, and here it is, the collection going to the federal government. I 
I don't know if that's a dream that it you is. have to it's give a your collection. It is, and, it, and I might add, this can only happen in America. No other country do you have that opportunity. Because it's all nobility and something else. And you know it, Ma. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I never feel like we really gave it because to me it's always ours. It's here, and it's not in our apartment, but it's still ours. Our name is still up. <laughs> yeah, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, sort of forming the collection, you know, going to galleries. You've talked about your relationships with artists. What about your relationships with gallery owners and dealers, and how did you come to weigh different aspects of what you would buy, choose one thing over another, that kind of thing? You're looking at me. I'll let Dorothy answer. There was no one way we bought a work. There was every story, there's a story for everything, a different situation. Um, every single piece in the show, I can go in for how we got it. But a lot of times, we knew the artist's work. We'd seen it in shows, and um, we somehow made contact with the artist and go to the studio. And then with the artist, go through a lot of work. And then by eliminating works and by talking to the artist, and this one might take several hours of really seriously looking and making selections and talking about it, finally coming down to one work. So sometimes when you see one thing that we bought, uh, it was because we spent a lot of time looking at the works before we visited the studio, and then in the studio itself, having a big dialogue with the artist. It's not an easy process. It isn't just going in to an artist studio and say, I like that, buying it, and that's it. It was a lot of legwork, a lot of thinking, and a lot of uh, energy. So a it, lot uh, of what one thinks of as instinct, in fact, is a very educated process. I think so. You educate so. yourself in the artist's work, and then you let instinct take That's over. right. That's right. I'd like to say something about the collection. Uh, this kind of collection uh, has its uniqueness in some ways, and that is uh, the few collectors that have collected this kind of art have great large pieces, major works. And our collection, because we didn't have very much money and very much space to store these play things and art objects, so we selected small things, but good examples, which is very hard to do, uh, on the other hand, there is an intimacy, as I see it in the exhibition, that I think is very, very outstanding for what it is. And I didn't, we didn't really plan it that way, but as I've gone into the exhibition uh, several times, I realize now it has a very central personality. For example, um, even uh, the great Gertrude Stein collection uh, there are very, very small, beautiful examples. And the same thing I was just reading by Gail Stravisky. Her, she sent me a catalog she did at the Philadelphia Museum. And uh, Gallatin, who was one of the great, great American early collectors in, in this country, and one of the great, many of his things were small. I'm not saying small things are better than big, but big things are, are, are very, very good. But there are differences. One is overwhelming, major, and the other is intimate, personal. And the contradiction between the personal in this collection 
And the impersonal excites me a great deal, which I see here now, which I didn't see before so much because I didn't have a chance to see it in this manner. And I've learned a lot since I've been here with the collection. Were there ever times when the two of you didn't agree on a purchase? How would, how would that work in practical terms? Would one have vetoed? Wouldn't it work, Mark? We, we, we have no collection. It's got to work, or if it doesn't, it's like a marriage. It doesn't work. If so it was always consensus? Not 100%. But 99%. <laughs> Don't believe it. That 1% doesn't count. <laughs> Do you ever think much about the things that got away? Does that, some collectors are obsessed by that, but I don't... Yes. Does yes, that, that bothers us. Does it? Yeah. Um, well, we don't have to worry about what we sold. We never sold anything, because a lot of people regret <laughs> they sold things. But there are a few things that got away that we could have gotten. Oh, sure. I guess when you're a collector, you're in for the kill. <laughs> and if you see something, you don't get it. Uh, but that's life. It, uh, no matter what you're buying, if you don't get it right when you can get it, it you might not, never get another chance. So uh, I think you learn one of experience. you told a story in the catalog about what happens when you can't decide between two pieces. Sometimes you know we learn to buy both. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and why would that be? It's interesting what you said about that. I think rather than choose between. No, then if the two are equal value, then. Why, have, why not have both then, right. if you can afford it? Oh, we were lucky in some cases. One time we visited, um, I can't think of his name, Phil, Phil Pearlstein. Pearlstein, yeah. And uh, we selected a drawing, and it was from two. We finally made a selection. And a few days later, he sent the other one in the mail to us. He said that since we liked the other one, he felt we should have it. So That's we got wonderful. both. Which is extremely generous. And I might say... The artists have been generous to us. I mean, this collection really, really is all about generosity. It is not about money. <coughs> and I must say it's true. The artists have made things very affordable for us, which we're very fortunate. I know. There are a few artists who you've collected in enormous depth. For example, Richard Tuttle and Bob Barry and Edda Renouf. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain? Speak a little bit more about how that happened, what your um, desires were in forming such large collections of these artists. I think in all those cases, the, the work sort of speaks for itself, that their work has so much depth in them uh, and that you like it so much that you don't want to stop at one. If you can afford it and you have the opportunity to get as much as you can. And so with those artists, we had personal contacts with. We had the opportunity to get as much as we can. We took advantage of it. The other thing about the uniqueness of the collection, among other things or not, and that is by having so many of these people's works, unlike the traditional uh, in Western art, it begins to include the process, which is what Mark was talking about in the beginning uh, and ended up with process, as I recall in your opening remark. But the number of works by individual artists is very significant in this kind of collection because I think it, it, it sort of elucidates, again I reiterate, process, which is important in this kind of work because it's like technology. 
And the thing that what fascinates me, and I went into the Gemini collection, which is on now, on view, and our art, a lot of it borders on multiples, on additions, and yet it has a kind of uniqueness in its own way, which I can't describe at the moment because we'll be here forever, and I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, uh, it does have that 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 quality or characteristic uh, of multiples and additions. And I wonder if you thought about that, Ruth, because I think it's uh, it fascinates me, and yet. Uh, it, 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 uh, it isn't in an addition. It, it, it has the contradiction which fascinates me. Uh, it is not of an addition. It's uh, more or less unique and yet has the characteristics of, of an addition. Because I went in there this morning and I was, I said, oh wow, it's very similar. And I'm not talking about overlapping on artists, but the approach. So the in interval between additions and, and, and this it's very interesting because of our technology. And I'm trying to bring this into a kind of moment because a lot of the art that we have is schematic, diagrammatic, technological. And that what, that's what this collection has, but I also think it has a kind of contradiction in some ways, the intimacies, which I brought out a few moments ago, which I'm looking for. And these, to me, are very significant and very central to the collection. Well, don't you think um, the fact that so many of the works in your collection are drawings adds significance? Absolutely, to, Ruth. Um, Absolutely. Sort of first thoughts. Absolutely. It's exactly. Why, why uh, did you concentrate on drawings? It seems to me that the, the greatest number of drawings some of that may have to do with process. Yes, and uh, as Dorothy and Mark and all of us said here, it is cerebral, thoughtful, intellectual. It's not about color. It's not about sensuality. Now, there's nothing wrong with color or sensuality, but this is a different kind of book. About ideas. It's about ideas. And that's what this collection is about. Either, you know, you get it or you don't get it. I mean, it's about ideas. Also, uh, drawings are more affordable than maybe big yeah. paintings and yeah. sculpture. Yeah. Um, so. and one thing I think ought to be added, though, is uh, the way our eyes change. And I think even if a lot of this art started out as particularly about ideas or cerebral, it's amazing how, as time goes on, such things can become beautiful. We have oh, yes. an expanded notion of the beautiful. That's true. Well, and also the sensuous. I mean, certainly yeah. the post-minimal room yeah. with rubberized horse hair mm -hmm. and beeswax mm -hmm. and scraping away and is wire. about as sensuous. Um... The uh, Alan Surrett uh, pieces, I thought the shadows on the wall well, was absolutely exquisite. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it competes with the piece itself yeah. as far as the beauty of the shadows. Well, the well, other thing I want to say about the collection, and I'm talking about the collection a little more than uh, collecting it, so on, is I want to say something of its significance or insignificance, and that is, in my opinion, <clears throat> this is the first international kind of art that we have done so far, in a sense that 
the abstract expressionist movement, which is a very beautiful and important movement, movement is New York style oriented. Um, the other previous uh, styles have come off more or less from Europeans. Uh, I think that this is the first international style, and I don't know whether it's good or bad. I'm only dis expressing a, view a viewpoint at the moment, and I'm not here to, to uh, I'm not a critic, so I can't you know, clarify it any further. But it's interesting to me that it is, in my opinion, a first. How has, uh, thinking about your collecting, just the process, how has the art world changed from the 1960 to the present in terms of the place of the collector and what you can accomplish and so forth? Well, that's hard to describe, but let me give, let me try to say something historically <clears throat> about the collection, and that's not easy. I don't know whether I can or not. I'll try it. I may be a total failure at this moment. But when it started out from minimal to conceptual and post-minimal, what's strange and interesting to me is that the variations that took place, uh, the conceptual use of phrases and words abstractly. For example, Bob Berry, there is no, um, there's no moral to it. There's no story. They use it aesthetically or unesthetically, the way you want to look at it. The other th or process or however way you want it. The other thing is um, now there are subdivisions as I see it. Out of all that became what I think feminist art, um, you know, um, gay art, lesbian art, whatever you want to call it. Earth art. Earth art. Well, I came in there. Yeah. That was still in the process we collected. But it's very interesting, and it became political art. We're in right now, this, from what we, as I see it, from conceptual, has now branched into the very big moment of political art, which I mentioned, all these causes. And uh, I think it's very fascinating uh, how, uh, from conceptual art, subdivisions uh, have developed which we're now in. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't collect that um, kind of art. I think Dorothy and I went back to traditional. I'm collecting more traditional ways, uh, like sculptures and paintings, which are much more traditional, and I admit, I admit to that. I went back instead of going ahead. <laughs> we're not political. We, we don't buy political art. It's one thing the collection doesn't have. It's, in spite of everything, it's a kind of art that's more or less complacent. It's not about violence or killing. You don't see uh, violence. And I'm not saying anything against violence, but I think that there's so much around sure. it. Would be nice. <laughs> we'll say something against it. No. <laughs> Can't we say like. something against that? I'm against violence. <laughs> It's but, nice to come into a museum and not see a little, little bit of that around. I mean, it's but, the one place you can go now that you might not have that encounter. Yeah, that security. Yeah. What about, though, as a collector? I mean, was it easier to get to know artists, do you think, back in the 60s? Were there, are there more collectors competing now for things? What, what's the But difference? there's more artists now who would like people to get to know them. <laughs> So it's no different. I don't think so. I think there's just more of everything, which makes it hard. 
I don't think we could ever do again what we did then. First of all, there's more galleries, more art to see, more artists, more museums. I don't know how you can cover it all anymore. It's impossible. Uh, when we were younger, of course, we can do it easier. As we're getting older, uh, and our, we get tired more quickly, we can't look as long as we did. Uh, we had to do what we did when we did it. We could never do it again. Other people might do it now. I mean, you're sure. younger people, but this is, we can't. What we're really doing now is trying to uh, add the artworks of artists already in the collection, those works we have in depth. If we can get another Bob Mangal, we're delighted, or another Solowit, or Richard Tuttle, or Edwinoff, Bob Berry, whatever. But we really don't have the energy to focus in on new young artists. But you do collect a number of younger artists. Once in a while, but very rarely. If you mm -hmm. see what's coming in to the museum these days that uh, we're transferring over to you, mm -hmm. it's mainly the people already in the collection. Mm -hmm. But you do still go to galleries as you did in the 60s oh, yes. on the weekends. But we don't go to every single gallery. And do, you, and the, or do you talk about how New York is different or the art world is different than from the 60s? There's so many more galleries. We don't, can't possibly cover them all. There's many exhibitions we miss. Uh, some of the important ones we try to see a few times. So therefore, some of the ones that are a lot of the way, we not get to at all because we have to concentrate on certain ones that we're interested in. We have to have our priorities. And we're just, just two people with, with four eyes <laughs> and four feet. So uh, it's, we're limited how much we can do. We still enjoy going to galleries and museums, and it's still our life. We're retired, but that's still a main emphasis of our life. Just that we have to rest more. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to add. How are we on time, Mark? We're doing fine. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask um, if, uh, if you would play uh, Seer and look at the crystal ball. I mean, do you see the art that you've collected uh, having lots of heirs? I mean, is that kind of work continuing to uh, spew forth new generations? Well, I just said that a few minutes ago about subdivisions. I genetically divided into a few subdivisions. I don't know them all. But I think the most significant uh, subdivision of that his political art, which is momentarily, it can be subdivided into but, lesbian what, gay. But he's art. asking about what happens after that. Oh, no, I can't. I think that there's a return to painting, don't you? There's more of emphasis on painting yeah. and that uh, easel art, and um, uh, that, that sort of things go in cycles. And I think it's time that paintings came back. It's hard to predict. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I went back on Dorothy a little bit on additional. But I don't know whether that's the way to, to go or not. I, I'm not a critic. I'm, I, I'm, I'm just, that's a very hard question to ask, yeah. to ask how, what the future could be. But as Dorothy said a moment ago, there is a return to painting, which is traditional, the, what we call hand. Uh, and I like that, too, even though uh, our collection isn't only, is not about the hand, I still like traditional things, and I, I, I have no objection to it. What advice would you give a young collector? I think the basic thing is to get what you like, uh, whether you get a photograph or a drawing or a painting or a sculpture or multiple. Uh, there's such a variety of works you can buy in the art world. 
but the important thing is that you really like it because uh, you can't worry about investment because that can go up or down. The upshot is that if you really are going to live with it, you really have to like it, and that's the most important thing. I think Dorothy's correct because what we bought, we never thought would end up here or anywhere else. We just liked it, and we continue to like it. And frankly speaking, this is unbelievable that it's here. I mean, I couldn't. And, uh, I think I, I'm more yeah, shocked than maybe you people. I think um, <laughs> Herbie's uh, quote is saying that we didn't understand a lot of the work because if we waited till we understood, we wouldn't have gotten it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> It's very true. Well, that's where the educated instinct comes in. Yes, that's true. Should we take questions? Yeah, I think it's time. Yeah. Um, are there any uh, young artists or contemporary artists that you particularly like now that you've seen in New York recently? Or any, gal any galleries or artists that you feel are particularly exciting to you? Uh, the question is whether there are any young artists or particular galleries that are especially exciting at this moment. I would like to say there are very, very many. I wouldn't want to single anyone out because that's become a little, I think, a little... It's your stock to... Yeah, I think it's a little prejudicial at the moment. But I do want to answer your question generally rather than specifically. There are more interesting artists now out all over the world than there were 40 or 30 years ago. There's so many more. Now, the question is, and which is a little more difficult, who would be better is something I can't answer, but that is another very complicated question. Other questions? Yeah. Did you start collecting with the idea of making a, a collection like this? And, and if not, at, at what point did you realize what, what you had, what it had become? At some point it must have struck you, oh my goodness, we have... 1,500 uh, pieces of this art. <laughs> uh, do you want to restate the question? or I can answer it. Yeah, the, the question is, did you start out with the idea of forming a collection, or uh, and if not, at what point did the Vogels realize they had a collection? No, we just started buying what we wanted to, and uh, we never would have the presumption of calling it a collection. It wasn't until other people started to... Uh, call it a collection, and other people started asking to come over and see the collection that we realized there was one. <laughs> you thought they had a wrong number. You said that you don't sell anything. Does that mean to say that you haven't made mistakes that you recognize? I'm just saying that a lot of people, uh, the question was, we don't sell anything. Uh, about making mistakes, just that a lot of collectors who have sold works always complain that we shouldn't have sold this, we shouldn't have sold that. We never sold anything before, so we, that's one thing we never had to regret because we never did sell anything. Well, I think the, the questioner is asking, saying, do you yeah. ever feel you've made a mistake? Oh, oh, that we should have? No. Oh, no, we wanted to keep the collection together. You don't look at something and say, what in the heck did we ever get that thing? Uh... <laughs> I think that basically uh, maybe 99.99% that we still like what we bought and that we still see beauty and attraction to what we bought. I think that's uh, a pretty good percentage. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I wish it were a little more empty, but um, <laughs> right now uh, the question was, does the apartment seem empty that so much of the work is now here? Uh, we have boxes and boxes of documentation that clutter up the apartment, and we just can't get rid of it. And uh, we have given a lot of archives material to the Archives of American Art, but uh, until it gets there, I have accumulated a lot of material that has to be assorted and put in boxes and then we go through a lot of books and magazines, and so our apartment seems to us just as cluttered. Although it's not with art, it's with uh, documentation and uh, uh, magazines and works like that. But there are still works of art hanging. Uh, well, apartment. since everything was removed to come here, um, we had empty walls, which we painted the apartment. Then we started buying <laughs> uh, new art, and we started putting them on the walls. So, yes, we have art now back on the walls. In other words, you haven't stopped buying. No, 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 no. no. Other questions? Yes. Because you have been in conversation with artists, have there been times when the artist's personality has interfered with your appreciation of the art, uh, and secondly, have you found yourself contributing to the prop to the artist's uh, creation because you have been in conversation with her? Um, I forgot what the first question was. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the first now, question? When the personality of oh, the artist oh. interfered with oh. the appreciation you mean, of his art. Sometimes they have like a favorite work and uh, they say, well, they like this. And sometimes the reason it's a favorite has nothing to do with the art itself. It might be they're in a good mood when they did it or it has a relationship, uh, association other than the artwork to them. So we really have to overlook that sometimes when we look at the work and look at the work for itself. We always like to hear what the artist has to say, but we really have to really look at it ourselves. Um, and sometimes, looking at an artist's work, sometimes we don't find something we like at all, and we have to say, well, let's come, we'll come again and see if we can find something. The other um, part yeah. is that what you're trying to, if I understand your question, is the exchange of ideas between the artist and us. Sometimes it can be very helpful, uh, sometimes, but not always. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, probably the most compelling thing I find about uh, your collection is the fact that you lived in such intimate proximity to it. However, was it difficult to keep these things in good condition? I mean, you know, things that were made out of paper and horsehair, and, and you had to live with them. And, and how did, did you get, did you have people give you advice on that? Uh, yes, we had various conservatives come to visit us who were friends and give us advice about, especially about lighting. Uh, that we had to cover some works up in the apartment because the light was too strong. Uh, the work you see now by Ed Ruscha, Beet Juice, um, called Color Fast, we covered that up in the apartment um, and only showed it when people came over because it can fade. It is made out of beet juice. And um, we've uh, some of the works we had to put on high because we have cats to make sure that they didn't get at the works. Uh, so uh, I think we did a pretty good job I think when they took things over here they found things in pretty good condition 
Uh, you should add that you also have turtles. Yes. Well, actually, you know, people ask if the and cats fish. ever ruined the work. Do you know the one who did the most damage was the fish? <laughs> because we had an Andy Warhol um, Earth People's cow. Park. Oh, oh, that's right. It was the cow. The, the, the cow um, um, was a poster. Yeah, but it was uh, done for uh, a benefit, which made it even more unique. Yeah. And anyhow, the the, uh, fish threw some water, you know, splashed water on it. We had to have a restore, take the water mark out. So they did the most damage. The cats never did anything. Was the fish punished? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To answer your question more seriously rather than foolishly, uh, I'm simply amazed that we didn't have more problems with the works because we had them piled up on top of each other in a very small space. And the number of cats we had, we had eight cats at that time. I lost one now. I still have seven. And how more damage <coughs> hasn't been done, I can't answer. There's a question up there. Yes, if this is inappropriate, just tell me. But uh, what is the least expensive way of it's inappropriate. We never talk about price. Just look. <laughs> yes. Uh, we mainly bought artists who came to New York, who not only lived in New York, but, for instance, the Klaus Rinka visited New York. He did some, had a show, I think, at uh, the Clock Tower, and so we got to know him. We got his work. Um, Jan Dibbets came to visit us from Holland, and he had the work with him, and we bought it from him. Um, so a lot of the European works in the collection were because the artists came to New York. We were not big travelers. So we didn't have the opportunity to go to the artist studios in other countries. So that uh, it was mainly New York because that's where we are. Yes. Uh, you say before 90, you started collecting in 1965. 62. 62. You mentioned that you liked very much impressionism. Yes. Uh, did you collect anything beyond this collection which precedes, you know, in style, different styles? Uh, when I met my husband, he already had some works that he bought before he, I met him. The first piece he bought was uh, was a print by Picasso, and uh, he had a gouache by Carol Appel, and um, was it Richard some sculpture of Stink- Richard Stankiewicz and Sidney Gordon. So he had a few works that he bought, but uh, nothing you would call a collection. I guess those and some early, uh, maybe second-generation abstract expressionists. I think one of the exciting things about the way you collected, and it's sometimes sometimes said that this is what a young artist should do, is you went directly to what was happening now. Mm -hmm. You didn't worry about the past. You went to the avant-garde or what was happening now. That's right. You started from that point. I wanted to say this is why I'm so glad the audience is here today. I said this collection is about now. It's about us whether we like it or not. (laughs) Yes? Um, I just want to say that it's very refreshing to hear you all talk because I think we live in a world that's excessively materialistic and where art has been turned into consumer products. So I'm just thrilled that I read about this lecture in the newspaper by accident. So thank you for sharing your work. uh, Oh, 
very, very it's nice. very nice of you to say that. <laughs> sure. Well, we wanted to be artists at one point. Um, I really should backtrack. When I met my husband in um, 1960, uh, I didn't know anything about art. And he was studying uh, painting at NYU, and he wanted to be an artist. He had already had courses in art history at the New York Institute of Fine Arts. And so to order to learn about what his interests were, I took courses in drawing and paintings myself. So I wanted to be an artist. And uh, we got a studio on 17th Street that we shared with another artist. And so weekends and nights, we were painting. I did uh, um, Hard Edge, and he did more abstract expressionists. So we did paint ourselves for a, a brief time. And then uh, in the late 60s, when we had accumulated many of the works that you even see in the show, we realized that they were doing much more exciting works than we were, and we gave it up. <laughs> and I always, this is the time to say, well, if we didn't give it up, we wouldn't be here today. It's true. <laughs> yeah. well, did you buy at any time any work of the street fair or so called in New York City? The art work was on display. Did you buy anything from them? No, no, uh, because um, we never just uh, never did that, no. Other question? Mm -hmm. Yes, way up there. Is there any work that you have a particular fondness for? I understand that you appreciate and, and bought all the work because that is what you enjoy. But is there something that is the apple of your eye, so to speak? Um, I have to admit that, that Richard Tuttle, Monkey's Recovery, is really one of my absolute favorites. I can't deny that it's... <laughs> How about you, like uh, Well, uh, that's a very difficult collection. It's like saying, which children do you like the, more than the next one? So again, what makes the collection is the collection. And at times you might look at one and say, I like this better than the next or more. But then again, you go back to your own children if you really are sincere about it. Yeah. And I think yes. the most important thing is to be sincere in what you're doing whether raising children or collecting art or whatever else you like. That's very true. Um, I never saw a Bob Mangold I didn't like. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I, I could never pick one that I liked better than the others because I, I liked them all. And that is true, like with Edward Enough. I, I would not want to be a curator in having to make a selection of the works because I like them all. And I just marvel that Ruth and Mark was able to choose and do it so well because I could never do it. Thank you both because it was difficult. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have a criteria that you follow to purchase uh, an artwork? And secondly, have you ever helped an artist become more famous because you bought something from them? Uh, you're talking about criteria. The only criteria we had is could we afford it and we can fit it into our apartment. <laughs> Um, what was the other question? <laughs> Whether your buying works of art helped their career. I don't know. It's not for us to say. Yeah. I don't know. We're not commercial collectors, so we don't promote artists. We just collect them. Yeah. Did you ever have any strong disagreements on a choice? 
No, no. Yeah. I'm just wondering why you chose the National Gallery to donate the collection to. Um, wasn't, wasn't there a, a major in New York from there that, that approached you? Uh, it was because of Jack Howard, uh, who was the curator of 20th Century Art. Um, we had considered other museums, but uh, we liked the idea of giving it to the nation. We liked the idea that the National Gallery is free. They do not sell from their collection. I hope it stays that way. And it's one of the finest institutions in the world with the best curators, conservators. We made a good choice. (laughs) Uh, Also, one other reason. They had nothing like that in their collection. So it would be uh, sort of, uh, for the contemporary art, it would sort of be uh, this core of uh, the latest work that they didn't have in their collection. It's not adding more to the collection of what they already had. Oh, I'm thank going you. to enjoy it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah. What would be your recommendations for someone beginning a collection today? Uh, I think it's just to do what you want in your way. You really have to go at your own speed, get what you like, and um, everybody is different. Everybody has different priorities, and it just... Don't listen to other people. If you like something, you get it, if you can afford it. Thank Thank you you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 